Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we have someone incredible. This is Vanessa Podkin. She is the director of post-conviction litigation for the Innocence Project. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, how are you? Great I'm- to meet you. Yes, I'm so excited to have you. You are responsible for exonerating over 30 people through your career. Is that all through the Innocence Project? Yeah, I basically came to the Innocence Project in 2000, which was the year I graduated from law school. And um, I thought I was going to be at the Innocence Project just for one year. I had planned to go to the public defender's office and they had a hiring freeze and so we I couldn't start right away and I had been interning with Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield who created the Innocence Project and they said hey you know we have this organization and we have a few people there right now but we we got funding to hire a staff attorney why don't you come for one year and then you can go you know to legal aid and be a public defender and so I came for one year and I was supposed to leave but I just have been so compelled by the work that one year has turned into two decades. Wow, that's incredible. So you were the very first attorney they hired. Correct. That's that's incredible. So for anyone who doesn't know a little bit uh, about the Innocence Project, can you give a brief background of how they began? We were um, a clinic at um, Cardozo School of Law. And so um, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, who, who co-founded the Innocence Project, you know, started to see that DNA technology was being used in criminal prosecutions. And they recognized that if DNA can help identify who committed the crime, then it could be a really powerful tool for those people who were wrongfully accused and convicted. Um, and so they started Innocence Project really with a handful of law students you know, people who were in their early 20s in law school, and they would get these case files and go back and start to see, you know, was DNA collected when the crime was investigated that we could find today and test and and see if this person is is innocent. And, um, you know, to date, over 365 people have been proven innocent through DNA testing. Um, And when you consider all types of evidence that can help prove a wrongful conviction, the National Registry of Exonerations has recorded, you know, about 2,400 people who have been wrongfully convicted in the United States since 1989. Just so everybody knows, we're going to do a deep dive into one particular case. Um, The man's name is Purvis Payne. He's scheduled to be executed on December 3rd, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're going to tell you more about him because we're going to make some actionable statements so you can help save his life before that happens. But before then, I just want to acknowledge that a lot of us 
especially if we're affluent, especially if we're white, have this understanding that the criminal justice system works, that innocent people are proven innocent, that guilty people go to prison. So could you help dispel some of that myth or help people understand how it's possible that innocent people, for one, actually admit to a crime they didn't commit, and two, end up you know, in prison for something that they didn't do? How does this happen? You know, so to begin with, you know, we incarcerate more people in the United States than any other country, and we have 2.3 million people in prison. So even if you thought, you know, we have a pretty perfect system and, you know, any system is going to have an error rate. So if you, you know, took a really conservative error rate of 1%, that would mean that, you know, we have 23,000 people in prison who are factually innocent. Wow. So wrongful convictions happen at alarming rates. The FBI kept some really, you know, staggering statistics when DNA was um, being implemented. And throughout the years, they, they, you know, recorded how many times DNA evidence was submitted to the laboratory by law enforcement and said to be that, the, you know, that they thought this was the prime suspect in the case. And in, you know, 25, 30% of those cases, that person was excluded and that number stayed consistent over, you know, wow. a long period of time. Most cases do not have DNA in them. You know, less than 10% of violent crimes have any sort of DNA that you can test and get to the truth. Our system is just, you know, so large. We've moved to a system of mass incarceration in this country and it just, our, our, our system cannot accommodate getting it right um, given the volume that it's processing. So if you look at the indigent defense system and, you know, most people who go through the system have to rely on a public defender, you know, these are underfunded offices that carry, you know, in a lot of places, huge caseloads. And so some studies have shown that, you know, lawyers spend an average of, you know, seven minutes with a client before their case is resolved. Most cases are resolved through pleas, not because all of those people are guilty, but because the incentive to plead guilty, even if you're innocent, is so high. Um, there's a wrongful conviction case of a man named Brian Banks, who, you know, was, a, was in um, high school, and a woman, uh, you know, one of his classmates, a girl, accused him of sexually assaulting her, and, um, you know, he proclaimed his innocence, and um, at the time was being scouted by USC to, you know, have a professional football career and had a lot, you know, ahead of himself. He was just, you know, finishing high school. And he faced these charges and basically his lawyer, look, you can take a, a guilty plea. You may not do any time. You might do as many as five years, but if you go to trial and lose, you're going to be sentenced to 40 years. And so the only rational choice, even if you're innocent under such circumstances, you know, was really to take the plea. And he did. And through a twist of fate, when he got out, the woman in the case acknowledged that, that it never happened. And he was exonerated. But that's like a fluke. A third of our cases, nearly, you know, 29% of the DNA exonerations involve people who have confessed to crimes that they were completely innocent of. If you've never been in an interrogation room, it's very easy to say, I would never confess to a crime that I didn't commit. But the interrogation tactics that are used are very psychologically coercive and they do oftentimes result in innocent people falsely confessing. In reality, the whole purpose of it is to get somebody to admit to a statement, not 
it's not like an interview to get to the truth. What's coming to mind is humanity. Like I just had my first uh, brush with maybe getting sued and I had the pleasure of meeting a bunch of lawyers for the first time. And I found you all to be some of my very favorite personalities I've met in a really long time. Wow. I don't know. I just love honesty. I love a truth seeker. I love a sassy ass person, which I found a lot of them to be. And, um, and it really kind of gave me a peek into some of the psychology. Like if you think about just every one of the different professions that has to come together in a scenario of solving a crime or seeking a conviction, everybody has different stakes in the game, whether it be financial, whether it be genuinely seeking justice, whether it be to defend a client they know doesn't deserve a defense, but they're in it for like, whatever reason. And then obviously through this new wave of uh, Black Lives Matter, more and more of us become have become aware of these systems. And something stunning that I realized is I got very invested in the case of Elijah McClain. Are you familiar with him? Mm He's -hmm. one of the many um, Black men murdered by police officers in Aurora, Colorado. And for example, one of the stunning realizations I had was that the DA who chose not to prosecute or even investigate the case is friends with the police. And even that kind of stake and realizing there can be friendships and alignments that are corrupt at their base, it kind of gives me and I hope a lot of us an understanding on how this is not a cut and dry system. This is not black and white. And as you said, we don't really allow for the idea of human error, which in any profession is a given, even for a brain surgeon, it's a given that there is going to be human error, that there's going to be mistakes. So it seems we've built up a system where there's so much like a lack of accountability. And also, could you explain a bit about um, the protections that are afforded to prosecutors? Like I, I wonder in a lot of these cases, if the prosecution has a bad motivation to keep innocent people in prison just so they won't be known to have made a mistake. Does stuff like that happen where these corruptive systems play into people still remaining in prison, even though people know they're innocent or suspect they're innocent even? Well, you know, there was a report that was put out just earlier this week by the National Registry of Exonerations that, um, you know, looked at the 24 exonerations that have occurred to date and found that official misconduct played a role in 54% of the wrongful convictions. And 35% of that um, involved police misconduct specifically. And so, you know, we know that these are not innocent mistakes. We touched upon problems in the system of, you know, kind of these friendships and alliances and also incentives. Right now, what is people's perception of what it is to be a good prosecutor? Prosecutors are promoted um, based on winning cases and not because they take it, you know, they're presented with a case by the police and they take a look at it and they say, actually, you know, we have questions, we want to go back or we don't think this case should be prosecuted. And so, you know, our constitution says, or, you know, our Supreme Court has said that a prosecutor's job is to do justice, right? The prosecution 
is out for the truth. It's not out for a conviction, but that has gotten conflated. The Death Penalty Information Center also put out a report this week on race and the death penalty. It's not just that this system of mass incarceration has just, you know, popped up today or these incentives to obtain convictions and you have to go back and kind of look at the history. Prosecutors and police are really not held accountable when they commit acts of misconduct that lead to wrongful convictions, whether it's because it's malicious or they think they're doing the right thing. Witnesses are influenced, evidence is hidden. Um, and prosecutors right now are completely immune from pretty much anything that they do in the courtroom. And police as well. In New York City, there was a lawsuit um, that revealed that over a time period, 900,000 arrests that occurred in, you know, black and brown communities in the city were unfound, involved unfounded arrests. And they were occurring because there was an illegal quota system. And so people were being arrested for just, you know, standing on the street, disorderly conduct. I mean, if you want to arrest somebody, almost everything can be criminalized. I think you touched upon it with humanity. When you think of our criminal legal system right now is really devoid of humanity. You know, people think of really significant, serious crimes that are being prosecuted. But if you sit in a courtroom and just watch what kind of cases are going up day in and day out. It's, you know, people in jail because they were driving without a license. You know, I mean, just things where you're like, are we really incarcerating people because they gave a fake name to the police when they stopped them on the street? I mean, is this, does this system make any, any sense? It sounds like such a waste of time and money too. I just can't believe the the immunity thing. And I think something to recognize is, unfortunately, I think liberal or progressive people are terrible with the way we term things. I, I want us to have like a better PR team or something because defund the police just sounds scary. It, it sounds really terrifying to people and it's transformed into abolish police by the time it hits conservative like speaking points that they want to scare people even more to think we want to get rid of these systems. But to your point, we're not trying to get rid of anything. You just have to explore it's like when something has root rot, you have to get to the root of it and determine what the actual problem is. We're not saying people are evil. We're not saying it's an inherently wrong system or people don't need to be in jail for crimes genuinely committed. But if they're incentivized financially or even among their peers, then of course there is going to be room for not only human error, but for corruption. And it's my understanding, right, that um, the Innocence Project is also working towards changing those policies nationwide. Is that correct? About like police immunity and prosecution immunity? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So our, you know, policy department um, and policy director, Rebecca Brown, is working on changing these police secrecy laws, making sure that there are um, you know, paths for people to not only be able to access evidence to prove their innocence, but to, you know, change um, policies and practices around what we know to be some of the leading causes of wrongful conviction. Um, you know, one effort right now that she's undertaking involves eliminating the use of deception during interrogations. Yes. And so it's perfectly legal, you know, for police to lie to you. And someone might think, well, 
you know, why is that such a harm? But, um, you know, there was a man named Marty Tankleff who um, was a teenager when he came home and his parents had been brutally attacked and police came to think that he did it and they started interrogating him and they said to him, they lied to him and said that his dad on his deathbed said that he did it. Oh so what does that do to a kid? He starts thinking, could I have sleeped? Like, how could I, you know, if you tell a kid, you know, that his father said he did it and he ended up, you know, falsely confessing. The ability to lie to suspects is really just extraordinarily dangerous. So that's an example of, you know, something tangible that we can change now that, you know, ought to be changed and, and we're working to do that. I love it. So let's get into Purvis Payne. He has been in prison for more than 30 years maintaining his innocence. He basically found his neighbor, a woman, and her two children stabbed. And one of the children survived, but I'm assuming too young to actually be able to like be a credible witness in older years, or was that child ever questioned later on? Yeah, that child was too young to, you know, provide any information um, yeah. at the time, according to law enforcement, as to, to what actually happened. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so Purvis was in his, um, you know, early 20s. He is somebody who has grown up challenged with living with intellectual disability. He is the son of a preacher, and by all accounts, Everybody who knew him, siblings and community members, just like a real loving, very respectful young man. And he by then had grown into his you know, early 20s and had a girlfriend. And so he was visiting his girlfriend and she was coming home from a trip and he was waiting for her. And he heard a sound from the apartment next door to where his girlfriend lived. It was a, a cry for help. And he went into the apartment and he came on the unimaginable, a woman, a mom, and her two children, you know, stabbed. Um, and he tried to help and thought about contacting the police. And the police actually did come as he was still in the apartment building. And just being mindful that, you know, Purvis is a black man, the victims were white. This is um, Millington, Tennessee, which is right out of Shelby County. And this, one of the places that historically has a lot of lynchings and deep history of racism connected to law enforcement. And he panicked, you know, he was like, I'm here now at the scene. I've got blood on me and, and, and panicked. And he mm. ran out of the apartment building and he was pretty quickly arrested. Um, police saw him leaving and he was arrested. And there was no investigation into the crime from that point on. Police felt that they had the person who did it. And so other people um, were not investigated. Like the victim's ex-husband who was terribly abusive and who she had fled from. And he was not meaningfully investigated despite the fact that she was stabbed over 40 times, which oh my gosh. suggests that perhaps it was somebody who had a connection to her. Yeah, because I think when you just educate yourself on criminal minds and you go deeper than watching episodes of CSI or something, statistically, the it's astronomical how often it's an ex-lover. And especially if that ex-lover has a history of violence or abuse, it becomes, I mean, I don't want to quote a number, but I know it's like almost 100% of the time 
there it is. There's the, per there's the murderer. So the fact that that actually did exist, I know the complication though was that he was technically imprisoned at the time, her ex. However, he was also at a facility where he was apparently able to leave during the day and he could have had like a window of opportunity. Is that true? That's right. So he was discounted pretty early on. They didn't really look too much into it because he was in a lockup facility, but as it turns out, it wasn't quite locked up. It was more of a work farm and people would come and go during the day and there was no fence around it. And members of Purvis's legal team at the Federal Defender's Office, they located witnesses who worked there and said that it was very easy to come and go. And so that's something that really should have been thoroughly investigated. Is that guy still alive out in the world? Yeah. That's another thing. It, it blows my mind that the imperative is to just get someone in prison. And I understand that psychology, especially if media is involved and people just want justice. They just want it fast, like it's portrayed on television. But in reality, if an innocent person is in prison, that means a guilty person is not in prison. And if that person has the capability to kill two small children and a woman in that violent of a manner, it terrifies me to imagine what that man has potentially had the opportunity to do for the rest of his life. Which brings me to, it's so hard for me, I'm a, I'm a Christian woman and I try to exercise love and patience, but this district attorney, Amy Weirich, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's certain people as a woman, when I read about or educate myself on women that I disagree with to this degree, I just wanna, <laughs> That said, that's my emotional reaction that I will repress, <laughs> but I would like to know why in the hell this woman has been um, creating a blockade between Purvis while this other potentially extremely dangerous man is out in the world doing God knows what. She's saying, no, we're going to block this DNA evidence. I don't want to get it tested. What is her potential motivation? Like, not that I want to try to pathologize her too much, but what do you know maybe factually? Is DNA testing astronomically expensive and they don't have access? Does it take too long? Or does she have a different motivation for blocking this testing? Well, um, you know, her office, the Shelby County Memphis District Attorney's Office does have, you know, a history of prosecutorial misconduct. And there's, you know, another case that maybe one day you'll feature of a, of a woman, Nora Jackson, who was wrongfully convicted of, um, you know, of, of the, the death of her mother um, out of that same prosecutor's office where evidence of, of innocence was withheld during the trial. And so that you know, and how is that legal too? I don't understand how they can just choose to withhold certain evidence. How is that legal? Well, it's it's not legal, and that you know is what led to you know helped overturn her conviction. But but then is, there's no repercussion to the people that withheld the evidence. They just get to keep their jobs. Everything keeps moving. That's correct. That's Unless, I mean, you know, part of it is, you know, we definitely have to get rid of immunities, right? Like we have to change the law. People have to be held responsible. But in addition to that, everybody who's listening today and tuning in has the ability to be part of change because prosecutors in most places are elected. 
And these elections are pretty small. Sometimes, you know, just a few thousand people vote and weigh in on who's the prosecutor. And it it does make a difference. That is something that people have the power to be a part of because these elections are so important and most people don't ever think about them. There's never a justification, especially in a death penalty case where you are talking about committing the irreversible act of taking somebody's life. We asked for the DNA testing in Purvis's case. We had consulted with a laboratory, one of the top laboratories in the country, and they reviewed the evidence for what types of samples could contain DNA left behind by the assailant and said, we can get this testing done in 60 days. So it's not a matter of time. The Innocence Project offered to pay for the testing. So it's not a matter of money. There's no reason that if you think about it, the evidence is sitting in a court clerk's office, you know, just sitting there, right, on the shelf. When if this crime happened today, the first thing they would do is test the DNA evidence. Like there's no question about it. And so it's never too late to get to the truth. And just, I think that, um, you know, people just get so dogmatic and mistaken in what their role is because, you know, a district attorney's role is to get to the truth. It's not to say, I think he's guilty, therefore, you know, I mean, part of their argument was, oh, there's just overwhelming evidence of his guilt because he was at the scene. But we had a client, Clemente Aguirre, who just was exonerated after spending time in, on death row in Florida almost under identical circumstances where a neighbor of his, um, you know, was murdered, um, a, an adult, you know, a, a woman um, and her, her elderly mother. And he walked into the house and he found them and, um, and, and also, you know, panicked being a person of color, you know, being somebody here um, who, who believed that the police would focus it on him. And so he, he panicked and he, and he left and then police zeroed in on him and he was wrongfully convicted and sent to death row and DNA testing proved him innocent and identified, you know, the person who actually committed the crime. To stand in the way of a simple test is, you know, is, is really outrageous. And Purvis first asked for testing 15 years ago. And oh. at that time, the law was more restrictive and he didn't have access to testing. But, you know, we need to make sure that we change the laws in this country so that if there's DNA, if there's fingerprint evidence, you know, people who are convicted should have access to type, you know, to advances in technology to prove their innocence, period. Yeah. And, you know, and so it, it, I think it also just, you know, does require changing the prosecutorial mindset because you can have the laws on the books like we had in Purvis's case, but if, you know, the DA wants to have that mindset, then they're going to oppose. And thankfully, you know, we had a judge who um, this week ordered the testing and said, you know, we're going to get to the truth. Here. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> so what's next then if we get the DNA testing, will this exonerate him and we're good to go? Or do we still need to advocate for him? We definitely need to advocate for him because, you know, DNA has the ability to, you know, resolve the case, but we don't know if it will. DNA could be inconclusive, you know, so we don't know. Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee that we're going to get results. Um, we know it's capable of doing that, and that's why we should always have the test. But, you know, it's really important for people to, to remember that Purvis should not even be on death row in the first place because 
our Supreme Court has recognized that people with intellectual disabilities should not be executed and the execution should be stopped for that reason, independent of the DNA. So God is great community. We can definitely advocate for that because that is awful. And this is not going to be the first conversation we have about this. I want to continue this conversation as deeply as we can because you know, like you're saying, Vanessa, there's just so many different elements and facets to consider. And one of those is racial, of course, a lot of the stereotypes we have. I know that when Purvis was convicted, they were saying that it was like a sexually charged thing and that he was on drugs, even though no drugs are found in his system, correct? That's right. Yeah, so they just went off of all of these racial stereotypes, and we just have to acknowledge that we're not saying every police officer is evil, every DA is evil. There is no categorical truth that we're trying to impose on the human beings in these systems. But when we see cracks and molds and root rot in a system that is therefore rotting people and making these decisions come forth and imprisoning innocent people. If we're getting ready to murder intellectually disabled people, then there is a problem and we just have to acknowledge it. Also to further educate ourselves on why people do the things that they do to not decide that we understand the mind of someone that's in a trauma if they've just seen a couple of murdered bodies on the floor and they run away and their skin color is taken into account and their history like we can't say black and white this person is innocent because they cried hard enough or because they stayed at the scene of the crime this person is guilty because of x y and z the criminal justice system is supposed to have justice to it, as implied in the title. And if we're not seeing that, then we need to advocate for change. So I can't thank you enough, Vanessa, and everyone there at the Innocence Project for doing this. And this work is just so profound and beautiful. I love nothing more than looking at the pictures on the Innocence Project's website and seeing these exonerated people getting to live out the rest of their lives even when they're at the tail end which is heartbreaking even when they haven't been able to have families they haven't been able to live the richness of life that an innocent person deserves so we're all about justice here in this community and to that i'm also going to be donating some of the money from the lawsuit that i got to skirt because your donations were so generous that it exceeded my legal bill and that's something else to consider i had a lawyer write one letter and it was twenty two hundred dollars mm -hmm. so when someone is already living in poverty or not even poverty if this happened to me tomorrow i do not have the resource to defend mm -hmm. myself so race financial status stereotypes and a broken system all come into play when we're battling this system and we as voters like vanessa said can advocate for change that's the power that we have so any final thoughts before we part ways and you continue doing the badass work that you do <laughs> well that was so beautifully put i would just add that if people could go to purvis pain dot org and you know sign up to stay informed about his case and there will be calls to action um you know we will be petitioning the uh, the governor for clemency we need everybody in this fight with us
So all of the pertinent information will be linked below. The goal right now is to just save this man's life. Regardless of how you feel about Purvis's innocence or guilt, it is unconstitutional to use the death penalty on an intellectually disabled person. So just that alone is something that we should be advocating for. But I also happen to believe in his innocence, as I'm sure the Innocence Project does, which is why you've taken his case on. So thank you all so much for listening. I love you all and God bless.